Okay. Same rules, same rules as last night. You get to be up by the food, just keep eating as much food as you want to eat. If you want to go back and get some dessert, just go get it. I'm not offended by you eating during class. Um, this isn't a college lecture or anything, so go ahead. I had a professor at the seminary who taught at the college in Fort Wayne. And he's, he taught an evening class about church history, just a basic church history class. And some, there was a girl that asked him, well, I'm coming straight off another class. Do you mind if I eat food in your class? And he said, no, that's fine. Just keep it, keep it reasonable. And she said, okay. And the next night she came to class with the big old McDonald's bag and then sat right in the front eating her McDonald's in his class. And he was like, oh boy, what have I done? <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so there's two things. Two things I forgot to do last night. Uh, because I was just having so much fun, I didn't even read my own notes. I spend, I hate doing lesson plans, because I know everything that I want to talk about right up here, and it's busy work to write it all down. The reason I do lesson plans is not so that I know ex or have enough things to talk with you about, it's so that I limit myself to the things I am supposed to be talking to you about and to make sure that I don't forget things, which I did. So here are the two things that I forgot. First of all, for every one of these evenings, there is a verse that is sort of the key verse. And it's, it's the one that I have up here. If you notice, it's different tonight than it was last night. So one from last night is from Matthew 26, which was, uh, therefore, keep watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, which is a verse that ties into the idea that prayer really is a weapon. Keep watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Do this or else. Do this so that you do not. Uh, be, you know, ties in with the idea of being vigilant and sober-minded, which is what St. Paul would tell you to be. be and St. Peter says be sober, uh, be, be on the watch, always, and how you are on the watch is by praying. And the more you pray, the stronger that you get. The more you pray, the more protection you have. So it's a good thing, it's a good weapon. So that's a good verse just to remember. Uh, therefore, keep watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Now the second thing that I forgot is that there is supposed to be an aphorism for you every single night. Just a, a short little thing that is easy for you to remember that summarizes, summarizes everything that we have talked about. And the aphorism that I forgot to tell you last night is this, give power to your protectors. If you want to talk about prayer, as a weapon and understanding what prayer does and understanding why you should be diligent about prayer, why should you should use that weapon, that's why. Give power to your protectors. In your protectors, you are protected, and the way that you give them power, hi Sirsha, and the way that you summon them is by prayer. Give power to your protectors. So, uh, any questions about that or anything from last night about prayer? Okay. I have one point of clarification, and I'm only going to make it public because somebody asked about it last night, and that is 
I, I said, I had sort of an offhand comment that I didn't really mean to be a major point of the lesson, just something about how pastors very often suffer at the hands of the demonic. And I wanted to clarify that point just because I had a question about it. And the person asked if that meant that pastors suffered demonic possession. Well, the answer is no. What I mean when I say that pastors very often suffer some kind of demonic affliction, it's like what St. Paul talks about when he says he has that thorn in the side, which a lot of people tend to think is some kind of a demonic force that opposes him. That's often what you get when you're a pastor, is you have a demon or some demons that are regularly on top of you trying to beat you down. And <clears throat> what I said to this person is, a demon has a reason to hide from the world because if the world saw a demon and saw the way that a demon worked, then they would turn away. Uh, so there's a good reason for demons to stay hidden and to have their motives and everything stay hidden because if they came out and danced around, everybody would turn around and go, oh, demons are real. Then that means angels are real and that means God's real, so we better not. So they hide. But for a pastor, what does it matter? A pastor already knows that demons exist. They're not going to it's not going to help them to hide, so they come out in the open. And they just come full on against you very often. Not every pastor suffers that, but many do. Even if you're not suffering some kind of demonic affliction, every pastor suffers some kind of thorn in the flesh. Every pastor suffers some kind of cross. The, the office of the ministry is a very dangerous place to be. Uh, there are, are a lot of hardships that accompany it. And this is, this is um, the last thing I'll say on this point. Statistically, statistically, when you look at the office of the ministry and the kinds of things that pastors encounter, nobody would ever want to be in that position because there is much more hardship and much more sorrow and suffering than there is joy. The hardship, the suffering, and the sorrow greatly outweighs anything that you have in the ministry that is joyful. There's much more of that than there is of joy. And every now and then you have one thing that's really joyful amidst all of the suffering that you encounter, statistically. But the few joyful things you encounter are so joyful that they counteract the many despairs and make it still worthwhile to embrace the suffering. So that's what I meant about pastors often suffering and struggling with demonic affliction. There's a reason, and it's not just for piety and for being able to set a Christian example for the people, that a pastor especially must have a diligent, rigorously enforced life of prayer. Uh, if a pastor doesn't have that, then not only will the pastor and his family suffer, but so will the entire congregation. Because in the, in the place of, of the pastor, you think about all that we said about uh, you know, the enemies and, and prayer being the thing that pushes the enemy away. And if you, if you don't use the weapon, then the enemy comes. Or if you're afraid to pull the trigger when the enemy comes, then he just gets closer and closer and closer and closer. Well, for a pastor, that, that means that the enemy is coming to him, the enemy is coming to his family, like it does to everyone, coming to the household, but also coming to his congregation. So the pastor is one of the lines of defense between the wickedness that his people could encounter and the people that he stands up to protect. 
because the pastor functions in persona Christi, which means in the, per, you know, in the stead or in, in the place of Christ, which means that where the pastor is, there Christ is. So if Christ says, here, I'm going to take the bullet for you, then the pastor has to say, yeah, okay, I'll take the bullet for you. So all the more important then that the pastor be, the, be somebody who uh, in, enforces this rigorous uh, and religious life of prayer as well, that he takes advantage of the weapon himself. Okay? Now, tonight, we're on a different weapon, so you know what your weapon against the devil is, and that's prayer. But tonight we're talking about the flesh. You have a weapon to use against the flesh, too. And um, why would you need a weapon against the flesh? That's the big question to start with. Like, it's pretty obvious when I say, oh, the devil's going to attack you. You say, oh, that's right. I know I'm going to need a weapon against the devil. But the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. But to what? What does it mean that the flesh is weak? Weak to sin. Okay, weak to sin. But again, what does that mean? Okay. We give in to pleasures. Yeah. Yes, we give in to pleasures. Why? That's what the good stuff is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking like a man of the flesh. What you mean to say is that's where you think the good things are. <laughs> See? No, but you're right, because that's, ooh, that's, that's the good stuff. The pleasures of the flesh, you know, the stuff that makes you feel good, uh, overindulging in food, like Thanksgiving, you know, unbuckling the belt after, after that meal, boy, it feels good to get full and eat more, like the 4th of July, too. There's a great comedian named Jim Gaffigan, and if you don't know Jim Gaffigan, get to know him. He's family-friendly, and he is really funny, and he has a whole joke. His whole shtick is food. Almost all of his jokes are about food. But he, he has a whole joke about the 4th of July. He says we, that you use the 4th of July as an excuse to eat more than you, you know you should. But, you know, I, I ordinarily wouldn't eat a whole watermelon, three brats, a hot dog, and two hamburgers. But it's what the Founding Fathers would have wanted today. So, you know, so you want the things of the flesh. You want the pleasures of the flesh because that's where the good stuff is. It's all the stuff that makes you feel good. If you ever read the book um, Brave New World by, all, uh, by Huxley, Aldous Huxley, one of the things in that book is that all of society is addicted to these pills. You tell me if you think this sounds familiar. Pills are called soma pills, which is clever because soma in the Greek means flesh, the body, the soma. Talking about my body, I want my body to feel good. So anytime you have a headache, you pop a soma pill. Anytime you're sad, you pop a soma pill. You know, and it's all about how I feel. My body needs to feel good. So all of society then becomes organized around how do I make my body feel good? And even if it's bad for you, you don't care that it's bad for you because you want to feel good. Ask a drug addict. You knew it was bad for you. Why did you keep going back? I mean, it's really easy when you're on the outside to say, don't you know that's bad for you? Or this is a better example, a, a smoker. We don't even have to go to drugs. We say a smoker or somebody who chews tobacco. They, you know it's bad. That's not I'm, not, I'm not speaking against anybody here who smokes or who chews tobacco. I'm just using it as an example. Because even when you go to buy it, there's a big old Surgeon General warning on there that says, hey, this probably isn't good for you. And you say, yes, 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 I know. Take my money. I like it. Okay. So 
that you, you take your cigarettes, you take your cigars, you, take, you smoke your pipe, you put your chewing tobacco in. Why? You know it's bad for you. You know it's bad for you, but why do you do it? Because it feels good. You need that nicotine. You need the energy. Whatever it is, like caffeine addiction is the same thing. Those of you who can't get started without your coffee, and I'm, not, I'm saying the people who can't, like you cannot get your day started unless you have a cup of coffee. And if you don't have your cup of coffee, you get that headache and you get that horrible mood. That's addiction. That's, an, that's a pathway in your brain that says this is the way it has to be. There's a reward pathway set up. It's a physical thing. You need it. Why do you need it? Why is there a dependency upon the thing that feels good, even though you know that drinking a pot of coffee a day probably isn't good for you? Why? You see, this is why we don't need to go to drugs, because I can, I can, I know that every single one of you here does something or imbibes of something that you know is bad, but you still do it. F fully cognizant of the fact that it's not good for you. But what is it that draws you to that thing? By the way, I have my own, okay? So I'm not saying like I'm, like I'm better than you. Share. <laughs> Come over to the parsonage and look at the top shelf someday. You'll see my extensive collection of scotch. <laughs> Is it good for me? No, it's not good for me. Am I still going to do it? Yes, I am. Why? Because I like it. That's why. Every now and then I smoke a pipe. Why do I do it? Because I like it. I like the way it feels. I like the way it tastes. Is it something that is good for me? Not in the slightest. And I know that. But I still do it. And every one of you has that thing too. That's the draw of it. I know that this isn't the best for me, but I want to do it anyway because it makes me feel good. I need my coffee in the morning because if I don't have my coffee, I feel bad. I can't function. I need my, my nicotine, if I'm, whether I'm chewing gum or whether I'm smoking the cigarette, whether I'm, whether I'm dipping. I got to have it because that's what really gets me, or my, you know, my energy. That's what gets me in my zone is I got to have that whatever it is. Okay? I got to have the beer after I get home from a hard day of work. I'm not condemning you for having a beer after work because... I do the same thing. Some days, I need two. <laughs> okay? But what I'm saying is, though, you know, all, all this stuff, in, in moderation, you know, many of this, these things are okay, but it's never just in moderation that we partake in them because we think, well, if a little bit is good, then more of that is better. And the more you have, the more it makes you feel good. So we get... That's the flesh. We want these things. Now, the early church would call it, and, and her theologians would call it the passions. Epithumia is the, is the word. Epithumia. I had this professor at the seminary, James Busher, Dr. Busher. Absolutely brilliant guy, but he would talk like this, really slow. And he would always say, it's the passions. Epithumia. And it just kind of sticks to Epithumia. It's the passions. And, and when we talk about passions, uh, you know, the early church is always, you read the, those theologians, I could name 10 of them to you right now, they're always talking about the passions are bad, flee from the passions. And the question is, well, what, does, what is a passion? Because, because if you're married, you can say what? I love my husband or I love my wife with a passion. 
or there is a passion within the marriage, right? I mean, there, there should be. You say, there's, there's passion there. Yeah. So is it bad then to say that you have passion in your marriage? This is, I'm just, this is a real question. Is it bad to say there's passion in your marriage? No. No, why not? That's what marriage is about. Sure. Where does the passion come from? Yes, but you're not saying it the way I want you to say it. <laughs> Pardon me? No, well, yes and no. The passion comes from love. If you don't, if you don't love your spouse, where's, where, how are you going to have any passion with them? I mean, you're not. So the passion comes from the fact that you love. And if you're, if you're in a, you know, a good Christian marriage, where does the love come from? Yeah, from God, from Christ. You love each other for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of the other person. You enjoy each other. You don't use each other. Using each other is loving for the sake of what the other one's going to provide for you. And if, if your love is defined in that way, then it's just perfectly fine for the husband to divorce his wife and marry somebody 30 years younger just because the 30-year-old the younger woman is going to be more attractive. Physically, a, a, a woman who's, who's that is, who is younger is going to be more attractive than a woman who is older, physically. But the point is, that doesn't matter. It, because if you really love your wife and you love her for the sake of Christ, you love her for everything that she is, and it means that to you she ought to be just as beautiful at 110 as she was when you were 21 and met each other at the state fair or whatever. Okay? That's the point. So if you're, if you're leaving your wife or you're leaving your husband for somebody younger because you want somebody that's more attractive, then you were only ever using each other, you weren't actually loving. Because then you were only married, you only loved the person insofar as their physical beauty pleased you. And at the point where their physical beauty no longer pleased you, you left. And you went to somebody else who would provide you with that high. But, but enjoying one another is loving each other for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the fact that you exist. I don't love my wife because she's beautiful. I love my wife because Christ is beautiful and Christ loves her and Christ makes her beautiful. I love her for the fact that she is, not for what she does or what she looks like. You know, physical beauty is, is only the cherry on top, but it's, it's not the substance. You don't order a milkshake and, and then say, boy, I'm really glad I got this cherry, and then throw the whole milkshake out. You know, there is a substance to the milkshake. The cherry, that's why that phrase exists, It's the cherry on top. It's the last tiny, 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 tiny little thing that makes this great, wonderful thing just that little bit better. Okay, so your flesh has a propensity toward the passions. And in this sense, the passions are not things that stem from true love, enjoying, you know. It comes from false love or using. The, the love of the passions, the lusts of the flesh, stem from what I'm going to get out of a thing, a substance, a person, whatever. It doesn't matter, as long as I'm getting something out of them that pleases me, that feels good to me, that makes me happy. This is a problem with the modern church of Satan. Did you know that there was a church of Satan? 
Well, I'm sorry to be defiling your innocence. You could have lived a long life without knowing that and nothing really would have, wouldn't have mattered to you. But now you know there is an official Church of Satan. In fact, I believe the Church of Satan sued Missouri for some anti-abortion thing. But um, the official Church of Satan is really not as bad as it's... I mean, it's bad, but it, when you think of Satan the Church of Satan, what that might be. It's not as bad as what you think that it might be. It's basically just hedonism. The Church of Satan says, Christianity is bad because you don't get to do everything you want. Satanism is good because as long as you're happy, nothing else matters. Well, that's using. That's embracing the passions. I mean, what does Jesus say about your passions? Can you think of one pretty famous passage where Jesus is talking about your passions? Exactly. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, does that sound like, I'd really like for you to live a life of comfort, so grab everything you think you're going to need, and then at your leisure, hop on this, this luxury cart, and I'll drive you along the way. No, he says, leave all of that stuff behind. Forget about it. I carried a cross, now you get to carry a cross. And the road is rough, and it's not well It's not, people don't walk it, it's the narrow path. And there's thorns and thistles, and there's a bunch of predators uh, around waiting for the scragglers. And we have to walk it. Have you ever portaged a canoe? Let me tell you a story. It, in my family, all of the men used to go up to the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, right there on the Canadian border. And we'd spend a week in this little cabin on Clearwater Lake, which was a beautiful lake. It earned its name. For yards and yards offshore, the water was so clear you could see down to the bottom. It was just crystal clear. And we would go out there and we'd just relax. We'd go canoeing and fishing, and hiking, and uh, every now and then we'd go on a hike to a waterfall called Johnson Falls. And in order to get to Johnson Falls, what you had to do was you had to paddle the entire length of Clearwater Lake. Then you had to get out, you had to put, take all your gear out, put the canoe on your shoulders, and walk through this terrible, terrible, terrible trail to Little Caribou Lake. And then you had to paddle the entire length of Little Caribou Lake. And then you had to pack up all your gear, put the canoe on your shoulders, and walk on this horrible trail to Big Caribou Lake. And then you had to paddle all the way across Big Caribou Lake, and then beach your canoes, and then hike all the rest of the way to where Johnson Falls was and then you spent about 15 minutes at Johnson Falls and then had to turn around and go all the way back to get back in time for supper. And the portages were horrible. And they were horrible because my dad's canoe was a tank. It was just a tank. Mad River Canoe, my grandparents gave it to him when he graduated with his MBA. They said, everybody, every man in the family should have a canoe. And I said, when you go and you get your MBA, Mike, 
our present to you is we're going to get you your, can your own canoe. And my dad's not a big outdoorsy kind of guy, and he just kind of, oh, okay, that's great. So, but they did it. They got him his own canoe, this mad river canoe, and they got this big tank of a canoe because they knew that he had his boys and that they were going to need some extra stuff. So, and then anytime we went somewhere, our canoe, because it was so wide, ended up being the cargo canoe. So not only was it a heavy canoe, but then it was full of gear. And then we get to the trail, and Dad would say, all right, you, you take all of this stuff, and you take all of this stuff. So here we are, loaded up with all the gear, and my dad gets the canoe on his shoulders. My dad is not an outdoorsy guy. He did not like to be in the outdoors. He did it because he wanted his boys to have the experience. So then we get onto the trail, and you know what? The trails were never clear. In fact, sometimes we didn't know where we were supposed to go because the trail was so messy. So here we are, hacking our way through the brush, covered in all the gear that we're carrying with my dad on the, with this heavy canoe on his shoulders, and he can't see where he's going. And my uncles and my grandpa, they just get the canoes, and they're just, and they're gone. And my brother and I and my dad are left behind with all of this heavy stuff sinking into mud up to our ankles, getting bit by deer flies as big as the palm of my hand, <laughs> carrying this stuff, not knowing where we're going, kicking through brush up to our hips. We finally make it to the water, and everybody's there snacking, waiting for us, and then we get to the end of the lake, and we have to do it again. <laughs> and then the whole way back, we have to do it again and again. Well, the reason I tell you that story is because that is what you're called to do. Take the gear out of the canoe, put it on your shoulders, and hit those terrible, terrible trails. The deer flies are gonna come. And man, when a deer fly gets you, you know it. Doggone, they hurt. You wouldn't think that it would hurt so much just having a fly come and bite you, but man, and they come in swarms everywhere. Well, that's what the Christian life is. Doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? At least not from my description. So you need to abandon the passions, because if you're so tied down to the passions of your flesh, lusting after the things of this world, what you feel and what, the, what your flesh wants, you aren't going to be able to follow Christ, because Christ says, come this way. It's rocky. You can't really see what you're going, where you're going. But don't worry. Even when you have the canoe on your shoulders and all the baggage, and you're sinking into the mud, and, and the trail's not cleared, I'm the one who's leading you, and you know that I'm never going to hurt you or lead you somewhere you're not supposed to be. And then you just kind of say, well, okay, Lord. I guess you know. And that's what it is. But if you say, no, I'd really rather live the comfortable life, then you can't follow him. You can't have it both. You cannot serve God and man. Okay, so. So do you still do that trick? No, just one time. <laughs> no, we did, it, we did it multiple times. It was, and it was weird, too, because we do it multiple times, and every year we'd say, this is the last time we're doing this. And then we'd go back there, and it'd be like Wednesday in the week, and someone would go, hey, you know, we're kind of bored. You guys want to go see Johnson Falls? Go, sure, sure. And then we're up there doing it. Oh, I remember why we did it. <laughs> Just like that. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my dad and my grandpa also, this, is a, this has... I'm just remembering it. It has nothing to do with glass. This is what you get. I'm all happed up on caffeine right now because it's been, been a long day. I was in Kansas City for a while. So, um, so this is just my mind. My grandpa and my dad took my younger brother across the border to Canada. 
because they thought it would be just, we're, I mean, it was like 10 minutes away from Canada. I said, oh, we'll, we'll do an afternoon trip. You can go to Canada, pick up some Canada rocks, and then we can come back and you can say, oh, we went to Canada and I got rocks from Canada. Said, oh, that's a great idea, a great idea. So they left in the morning and then it was an hour and an hour and an hour and they got back. It was so late in the afternoon when they finally got back. And what had happened was, it's really easy to drive into Canada without a passport, but it's a lot harder to drive into the United States from Canada without a passport. And it's even harder when you are two older men that have a young boy in the backseat of the car, which they didn't think about. So they got stopped by Border Patrol. They all got separated. My grandpa and my dad were taken into interrogation chambers. They had somebody come and interrogate my brother, asking, do you know who these men are? They searched the car, and they didn't believe it. All three of them said, we just drove to Canada so we could get some Canada rocks and say we had been there. And they said, That's, nobody does that. <laughs> that's so silly, eh? And I said, no, 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 that's really what we did. So they, they detained him for a while, then finally let him go. And they're like, you got, that's about the dumbest thing you could have done. And they said, yes, well, no, we just didn't think about it. Said, Obviously. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, we've been, we, we had gone back there. We haven't been up there in a while, though. But my dad keeps saying, yeah, it might be kind of fun for us all to go back up there. I said, you know, sure it would be. Because they don't want to come to Missouri because they say, Missouri's too humid. <laughs> Because we're all, we're all thick-blooded northerners and the humidity is just, it's killer. But your winters are very nice. <laughs> oh my. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't there and, you know, it makes a better story with me not having been there, I think. <laughs> uh, so. What's your weapon then? You know, your flesh has this thing. If you really, you want the big, really fancy, hey, I'm a theologian, I went to the seminary. If you want the big theologian seminary word for it, it's called concupiscence. Concupiscence, which just means my, my uh, fleshly inclination towards sin. The inner desire and tendency of my heart to sin. Rats, I should have printed out a cartoon for you. It's something I give out in the catechumenate, but it basically is a young boy and he asks his mother, Mom, this is, uh, I've got such and such decision to make. And she goes, oh, that's a really, it's a really tough decision. Why don't you, you're just going to have to follow your heart. And he says, okay, heart, what's it going to be? And the last frame of the cartoon is this horrible, evil, demon-looking heart, and it just says, sin. And it's pretty true. You know, follow your heart is the worst advice you can give somebody because if you say, follow your heart, follow your flesh, the only thing you're going to do is sin. What does the heart want? Mm. Heart wants a lot of things that aren't very good for you. The flesh wants a lot of things that aren't very good for you. And be, you have this concupiscence, that's this inner tendency and desire to sin. This is what Paul talks about when he says that, you know, I don't do the things that I should and I do the things I shouldn't. That's concupiscence. It's a constant war between your flesh and your spirit. The old man and the new. The old man is the concupiscence. What does the flesh want? The flesh wants to look at the tree and say, well, God said that it wasn't good, but my eye says it is good, and I'm going to go with what I see and not what God says. That's concupiscence. And that's the desire of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, the passions. Epithumia! Okay. So what's your weapon against that? 
Well, you're not wrong. I mean, basically, all of the weapons are things that stem from faith. Okay? This is where we look at our verse. Then I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God. How do you fight against the flesh desiring to take things in that's going to please it? You stop the flesh from taking in the things that are going to please it, which is fasting. So fasting is your weapon against the flesh. We're going to talk all about fasting. Uh, lots of people think that fasting is something that you only do during what seasons of the church year? Lent and? Yeah, and Advent. And why would you do that during Lent and Advent? Pardon me. Yes, that's, that's right. Think about, oh, sorry, go ahead. Hmm? Yeah, it's a penitential season. How do you know it's a penitential season? And don't say because pastor says so. <laughs> I know how many smart Alex I have. <laughs> that's, that's true. That, that's right. Because there's purple. Purple is the color of penitence. Anytime, anytime you see the color purple, it should make you think, oh, this is a penitential season. That's why you should be quiet every time you're in the sanctuary, but that's why in Advent and Lent we cut out even the opening things so that it stays quiet for longer, that there's more quiet, because it's, it gets lower and lower and lower in penitence. So you fast in a penitential season. Why? Because fasting is an act of penitence. Look through Scripture. Anytime there's like <laughs> something... Some, some big preaching of the law against people. A really good example, Jonah preaching against Nineveh. And what do the people do? The Lord, unless you repent, unless you turn away from your sin, unless you start living with faith in the Lord, you are going to perish in 40 days. And what do they do? Yeah, but how do you know that they repent? Yes, the Bible says so, okay? Yes, it says that they repented. But this is the question. What is the outward sign of repentance in that case and in, and in many cases? Fasting and prayer. Okay, yeah, fasting and prayer. And then there are a couple other things. Think about Lent. There's a special day that begins Lent. Ashes. Ashes, yeah. And then and sackcloth, yeah. Rough, like burlap clothes. That's one of the reasons John wears camel fur. Camel, camel hair, a camel hair jacket is not a comfortable thing to wear. It's itchy. Sometimes they would make shirts out of human hair, too. A hair shirt. And actually, you know, they used to... There were medieval torture devices that were like that, where they'd, they'd, they'd make you wear a shirt out of human hair and then lock you in a really tight space because it itched so much. So they would don sackcloth and ashes from dust you are into dust you shall return. I am nothing. I have no wealth, I have no riches in myself, and then I fast. I stay away from the lusts of the flesh. So, <clears throat> but fasting doesn't only have to be associated with Advent and Lent. Fasting is, is and ought to be a regular part of the Christian life. In fact, Luther, I don't have the full quote here because there were others that I thought were better that I'll share with you. But Luther said the Christian ought 
to fast often. Anytime the Christian feels like there is some kind of a vice or some kind of a fleshly lust or passion or addiction, then the Christian needs to take some time away and fast from that um, and get it away. So um, fasting is an act of spiritual discipline and piety, but in this sense we can also say it's bodily discipline. It's like kicking yourself off of cigarettes. How do you stop smoking? You, you, you kick yourself off cigarettes. How do you stop dipping? You kick yourself off the dip. How do you stop your caffeine addiction? Well, you kick yourself off caffeine. You have to deprive yourself of it. So when it comes to fasting, well, what is the spiritual need and benefit of fasting? Well, you deliberately take time away from the pleasures of the flesh, and typically it's specific ones, like in Lent we would say, well, what are you going to give up for Lent? And, and that would, you know, you don't have to give things up for Lent, but part of that is the great fast. Lent, the Lenten fast is the great fast. You say, well, I'm going to give up so-and-so. I'm, you know, the thing that I always do during Lent is no alcohol and no sweets. And it isn't, no alcohol is just kind of a, that's an old church tradition. You just don't drink alcohol during Lent. And then when you, you know, when, when you come back on Easter, then the, you know, the, the goal is the wine is more sweet when you've been away from it. Um, but the sweets, boy, I tell you what, I've got a real sweet tooth. Fasting from sweets for Lent is one of the hardest things I do through the entire year. And I'm not saying that because I want brownie points in your eyes, no pun intended. I just am doing this to show you what, you know, you give it up. What it, but it's what you crave. And I crave sweets. We always have some kind of cookie or treat in the house because I, I got to have some kind of sweet in the house. Otherwise, I get cranky. You can ask my wife. <laughs> yes? I gave up liver. You gave up liver? I think that's a good thing to give up all year. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. So when, you, when you're fasting, uh, one, of the, one of the key things to tell if you're fasting rightly or fasting wrongly, because just like with prayer, there is a way to misuse this weapon. There's a way to misuse any weapon. Pulling the pin out of your grenade and then dropping it at your feet is a really good way to misuse the grenade throwing it into a crowded mall and then realizing, oh, some of my friends are in there, not just my enemies. Well, that's a really good way to misuse the grenade. Uh, you know, loading, here's a good, looking down the barrel of your gun to see if it's loaded. Very, very bad use of that weapon, okay? So even the, the holy weapons that the Lord has given you can be misused and fasting is one of those. How do we know that fasting can be misused? This is the trick to see if you remember what Jesus says about fasting. That's right, if you brag about it. It's, uh, by the way, uh, one of the impetuses for this particular subject over these three nights, the weapons of the faith, comes from Matthew chapter 6. Because the Lord gives in Matthew chapter 6 the three weapons. And he says, when he gives each of the three, when you do this, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, which means the expectation is that you are going to do this and you are going to use these weapons. Why? Well, why is the expectation that when you go through basic and graduate from it and then go sit on the front lines that you get a gun? 
and you know how to use it. Why is that expectation there? Because you're going to have to use it. You need it. So there's the expectation that you're going to use it because the Lord knows you need it. But, yeah, okay. But what good does it do to fast and then Easter Sunday you eat every dessert that's on the table for Easter dinner? Well, you're not supposed to do that. The, I mean, it's like you're counting the days until you can gorge. Part of, yeah, you're not, supposed to go, you're not supposed to gorge. But at least during Lent, part of the point of fasting is that when you reintroduce, like when I reintroduce sweets, and on Easter Sunday, I go and I have that Oreo cookie that I've been craving all Lent. I, <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, we've, we've got plenty at home. Um, it is all the more sweet. I appreciate it in a way that I didn't appreciate it before. Like now I'm not eating Oreos to gorge myself on them because I have some kind of mental deficiency where I have to have sweets. Now I'm doing it because I love the sweets. It, it helps you to appreciate the things that you can enjoy, but to enjoy them more responsibly because they have stopped becoming a crutch for you. Which is why if you fast, and then when you're done fasting, you gorge yourself, then your fast didn't do anything. Because if you're really fasting and then counting every day and going, oh boy, can't wait, oh this doggone fast, can't wait, oh, and then when the fast is done, you just, ah, you know, well then what was the point of your fast? Because the moment the fast is done, you still exercise no discipline at all then your fast was really pointless. So the goal of a fast is never so that when it's done, you get to go back to doing what you were doing before. The point of a fast is always that when it's over, you're going to be different than you were before. So I still eat sweets, I just enjoy them in more moderation. And then as the year goes by, I don't enjoy them with as much moderation. And then when Lent comes around again, I need to reset the system and say, no, you rely on these things too much. Now take them away again and teach, discipline your flesh. Get, get your house in order, friend, is what you say, okay? And, and actually, we're gonna get to a whole bunch of other stuff about that and about the goal of fasting too. Because it's not just about food. There's a lot more that goes with fasting that people don't really talk about. Bill. And that at Easter, if, if I understand this correctly, then Luther's idea of fasting, as I perceived it, was that it, by fasting, you, it concentrated your mind on the issue at hand, which was Christ's, uh, the week before the crucifixion, the, the the suffering that he went through, and then, then the crucifixion, and that, that by fasting, in, in a way that forced your mind into that. And, and I, I struggle with that idea, because to me, if I'm fasting, pretty soon I don't want mashed potatoes and gravy, you know, but that's where I, I, I think I'm misunderstanding the point that Luther was trying to make, but that's... that's that is a facet of fasting. Fasting is a bigger issue than I'm going to give this thing up so that I can suffer like Jesus suffered. And actually, if the way that you, you handle your fasting is, I ought to suffer because Jesus suffered, then you shouldn't be fasting because then your fasting isn't actually an act of discipline or even piety. 
it's almost, now it has become something legalistic. It's like the sermon that says, well, Jesus did this for you. <laughs> what are you going to do for him? Well, I'm going to fast for him. You're making fasting into a work, which is what Jesus prohibits. Don't fast so that everybody can see. When you fast, don't contort your face so that everybody knows you're fasting. If you're going to fast, fine, but don't, you know, it's not for you to make a show of. It's not, you know, boy, you know, I just am feeling so bad today because I've been fasting, you know. You know, it's like, how do you know if somebody is gluten-free? Well, because they'll tell you about it. You know, it's that joker. How do you know someone's a vegan? Well, don't worry, they'll tell you. You know, how do you know if someone's fasting? Oh, don't worry, they'll tell you about it. Because they're not, you know, when you're fasting in impiety, when you're making a work out of it, then you, by default, make a show out of it. Oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, but I, but I can't eat because I'm fasting. You know, and the Catechism talks about fasting, too. Do you remember, do you remember where? The Lord's Supper, yes. Thank you, wife. <laughs> <laughs> The Lord's Supper, he says, um, fasting and other outward preparations or other bodily preparations are certainly fine outward training. So there is a long-standing tradition in the church of fasting before you receive the Lord's Supper. Why? Because then you have, a, you have a break in what you're feeding yourself, and then when you come to church on the Sabbath day, the Lord is the one who feeds you your first meal. That's why, by the way, the image of the pastor putting the host on your tongue is one that I like. That's always my preference because then it really is, you're not doing anything. You're standing there like a baby bird going, uh, 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 and mama bird comes and puts the food straight into your mouth. I mean, you don't have to do anything. And then you can't even walk away bragging, saying, well, I'm sure glad that I took the host and put it in my mouth because I had the choice not to put it in my mouth. Well, when mama bird comes and your mouth is open, you don't have the choice because the food goes right in. So your first meal is then the one that the Lord gives you. Uh, so there, that's why it's certainly fine outward training. But if it becomes a legal thing, like if I all of a sudden tell you that you don't get to have the Lord's Supper unless you can prove to me that you fasted from 6 p.m. the night before until the time when you receive it, or like, and this is, you know, I'm not trying to hate on Catholics here uh, because... But they do, there is a, there is a, a, a rule there. Right, and see, and what does it do then? So now the fast is imposed. I am forced to fast before I receive the Lord's Supper. And then what happens? Well, we just get up earlier on Sundays and then hit the McDonald's and just make sure we're done eating at least an hour before church because then we're good to receive the Lord's body and blood. As if the Lord's body and blood is going to like X, you know, Clark Kent X-ray you. Oh, no, you had breakfast. No, they can't, they can't have me because that's, that's the thing that makes you worthy to the Lord. Oh, oh, because you fasted. You know, this, you don't want to turn it into your, your work. So it's certainly fine. If you want to fast, then do it. And, you know, if you're going to do it, then you might as well commit to it and do it well. So look, at how, look up how to, how to fast before, before the Eucharist. And then if you're going to do it, do it. And if you're not going to do it, then don't do it. You know, but, but that's the point of it. If you want to discipline your flesh, then do it. If you want to do that before. It's certainly fine outward training. But the person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words. It is faith that receives not, not really even the stomach. The does, stomach doesn't receive Jesus. You don't digest Jesus. But, you know, that's a different thing. Yeah, Larry. When I looked at that fast there, it looks like as opposed to last night where you were doing the will. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? It's like I planned it that way. <laughs> you, I know, this is sort of, it's strange, isn't it? Come gorge yourself on pizza and then we'll talk about fasting. <laughs> Whoops, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. We should have had bread and water for supper tonight. <laughs> or gruel. Uh, so, you know, here's the other thing about fasting, though. You take away something, not just to take away something, but to replace it with something else. So when you're fasting, and when you're using fasting piously and as that weapon, you're removing the passions of the flesh and the desires of the flesh so that you can combat the flesh, so that you can say, no, 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 flesh, you're not the one who runs the show here. The Lord runs the show, and the Lord tells me what's good for me, not you. I don't need to turn stones into bread in order to live, because I don't live by bread alone, and the Lord will provide me my daily bread. I don't need to gorge myself on Starburst jelly beans to be a good Christian. Not that that's any personal insight for you, okay? <laughs> you need to become a beggar. That's one of the things that fasting does. You, you need to be a beggar. And when you become Lazarus at the door, that's when you become the beggar. You give up the things that the rich man has, and then you become the beggar that goes to Christ and says, sincerely, Lord, have mercy. Lord, Kyrie, come here, help me. Okay? There's sort of a witty saying that fasting is starving the flesh to feed the soul. And in one sense it's right, and in another sense it's kind of silly, but it's... In a certain sense, it's okay to think about it that way, starving the flesh to feed the soul. Fasting wouldn't, it doesn't mean just not eating. Um, it, it means not eating certain things, but then, but you can still eat when you fast. Like, I mean, let's be real, okay? Look at me, and then tell me if you think it would probably be a healthy thing for me just to go 40 days without eating or drinking. <laughs> if I did that, you wouldn't have a pastor for Easter. Okay, so you have to know yourself too, and you have to know what your body can do and what it can't do, and you fast within reason. Nobody is going to impose a strict, you can have one slice of bread and one glass of water every day. I mean, you're gonna, it's not worth killing yourself over. Pastor Kinney, oh, I, okay, all right, I'm not going to tell the story. Because I, I have another Pastor Kitty story to tell. That one I, I won't. He's, he's a pastor now. He's really close. Yeah, we don't, I don't want to tarnish your thought about him. It's, and no, we won't. We won't. <laughs> so um, here's a great quote from Bo Geertz. Bo Geertz was a Swedish bishop during the, ooh, I don't know, 50s, 60s, I think so. 40s, 50s, 60s. Right, is that right? 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there. Um, very, very, very smart Lutheran bishop. Uh, and this is from his book called To Live with Christ. This is what he says. What does it mean to fast? It means to willingly abstain. See, willingly. That means it can't be imposed. The moment that I make a law out of it, then, it's out, then, it, then it doesn't work. It has to be willingly. Spiritual discipline, you know, using the weapons that are given to you, it has to be willing. You get the draft, and I guess, you know, maybe baptism... See, this is hard, using the analogy, because in one sense it's the draft because you don't do it, but then in the other sense it's you enlisting because 
you know what's coming. I mean, we say, do you desire to be baptized? And you say, yes. So it's kind of both. It's your draft and enlisting all together. Um, but it has, to be, it has to be willing. You take up the weapons and you fight willingly. Um, because it doesn't work if you're coerced. You know, the, the worst soldiers are the ones that are just forced into it. Or like, you know, your kids do the worst work when you, f when you tell them they have to do it. Like, or, and maybe that's not universal. Maybe that was just me. Maybe that was just me being a horrible brat of a kid. But I remember being told, you go out and you, it's, you need to mow the lawn. So I don't want to mow the lawn. I don't care. That's your chore. You need to go mow the lawn. And then I'd go out and I'd mow the lawn, but I'd do a real bad job of it. Well, you told me to mow the lawn, I'll mow the lawn, but I don't want to do it, and then I'll, you know, you do a bad job, because then you say, well, you see, oh, because that's going to stick it to them, right? That's the kind of wisdom only a child has, because if I do a bad job, it's going to stick it to my parents, and then they'll never make me do it again. Boy, I'm smart, you know? You can all laugh, because kid wisdom isn't all that wise. Heed the lesson, young, young men and lady. Okay? Kid wisdom's not all that wise. So it has to be willing. What does it mean to fast? It means to willingly abstain from something that in itself is both permissible and good. Are sweet treats permissible and good? Sure. Yeah, sure. Sure they are. Is coffee permissible or good? Yeah, sure. You know, all, all this stuff is permissible and good. I mean, sure, if you want to eat some Oreos, go ahead and eat some Oreos. I mean, it's, listen, it's not going to be like, you know, go, ahead, go on ahead. <laughs> it's, it's not, you are, you are an enabler. <laughs> it, it's not going to be like you die and then Christ comes and you pop up out of the grave and he says, ooh. You are so good. I really want to bring you into heaven, but you ate three slices of pizza instead of two, so sorry, you're out of luck. I mean, you want to eat three slices of pizza? Okay, it's permissible and pizza's good, so that's fine, but you can fast from it. You abstain from it, why? Okay, in order to free yourself to serve Christ. Because your attachment to the passions means that you're a slave to the passions. Your concupiscence, if that's the thing that you are always listening to, you're not Christ's, you are actually a slave of the passions. You show both yourself and your Lord that you can take this earthly thing or leave it. This is the right way for a Christian to live. We should use this world and its goods as if we didn't need them. That's the way to think about it. You should use this life and the things of this world as if you didn't need them. Why? Because you don't. They're good gifts, but you don't need them. You need Christ. And Christ is going to provide you with your daily bread. So why worry about the food that you eat or the clothes that you wear? Why listen to the voice of the passions that says, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need? Don't feed the passions, feed the soul. The passions will bind you and enslave you. And you feel free, you feel liberated. You know, this is the problem with the modern feminist movement. Women are going to be liberated. Liberated to what? And from what? I don't know. 
liberated to not be themselves anymore, liberated to live a life that is more, a life in, in greater uh, subjugation than what they were living before. And they willingly went into it. That's the worst part. So many women in the modern age bought into this that they went in willingly. And then after all of this stuff, they become more slaves than they ever were before. They lose the things that were good that let them be free. And that's sort of like the passions. You're free in Christ. But the moment you start listening to the passions, the passions are the things that hold you, not Christ. And then you think that you're free. You think that you're liberated because, hey, I'm an adult. I can drink pop at midnight if I want to. I can eat Oreos for breakfast if I want to. I can do anything I want. Nobody gets to tell me no. Boy, I'm so free. But you're not because then you're a slave to the passions. That's the problem. We should use this world and its goods as if we didn't need them. There is a lot of good we should rejoice over, but nothing should control us. We should not let ourselves be bound or captive to anything. Nothing should be allowed to be more important to us than to the Lord himself. If you find yourself struggling with St. Mattress every Sunday morning, then perhaps that is the thing you need to fast from. And how do you know, how do you fast from St. Mattress? Well, you start setting your clock to 4.30 a.m. and forcing yourself to get up and take a cold shower or something like that, you know? I don't know. The, that, how you discipline your flesh in that sense is up to you. But this is my point. Fasting is not just about food. Fasting is about any passion of the flesh that overtakes you. Here's an example. Sorry, kids, but sex is an example. You can live a chaste life honoring the sixth commandment within your marriage, but you can also live a lustful life that is an adulterous life that breaks the sixth commandment even in your marriage. You don't, you, you know, you're not going out and picking up chicks or guys at the bar every night even though you're married and taking them to a hotel room or a motel room. You don't have to do that to break the sixth commandment. You can break the sixth commandment with your own spouse. Because the sixth commandment is about chastity. But when lust overcomes chastity, when you desire your spouse because of what they're going to give you instead of who they are, then sex isn't even what it was supposed to be. And then what do you do? Then you fast from that. Because if that's all that it is, then that becomes a danger to you. you know, all of these things, they're, sure, they could be good, but then when they become something that they're not supposed to be, when the passions say, ooh, I want that, I need it, I want it, then you have to go against the passions and say, no, I'm, uh, the Lord is the one that runs this show, not you. Your voice is not the Lord's voice, and I'm not going to be your slave. So this is why fasting is, is a weapon of warfare. It's a weapon against the lusts, and passions and desires of the flesh. You discipline the flesh, and in disciplining the flesh, you also discipline the spirit. It's a weapon against sin also, because one of the things that fasting is also intended to do is to assist you with sin. What is the, you know, the end goal of fasting from things, denying your passions? To stop you from relying on them. And what is it called when you rely on something other than God for your greatest good? I 
That's just a straight textbook catechism answer. God is the one that you rely on for your greatest good, which means that whatever or whomever you rely on for your greatest good is your God. And if the thing that makes you feel good becomes such a difficult struggle for you, I really have to have this thing, and it starts to dominate your life, then you fast from it. Because you cannot let that stuff be your God. You cannot let anything else, food, drink, house, homeland, you can't let any of your first commandment, or, or your first article gifts, or any of the items of daily bread that the Lord provides for you become the Lord to you. You can't let them be the thing that govern your life. So you're also fasting so that you can work to overcome and conquer sin. Here's a great quote. Fasting, however, is but a means to an end, and that great end is the destruction of sins. Here is a, a Pastor Kinney story that I am going to tell, and he knows that I'm going to tell this story, so it's okay, because I asked him. One of the, and I told this in Bible class, so for all of you who were there, uh, forgive me for repeating myself, but it's a good story. Pastor Kinney, for those of you who don't know Pastor Kinney, he was our seminarian that we adopted. He also happens to be a very close friend of me and my wife. He graduated from the seminary this year. Now he's pastor in Hiawatha, Kansas, just down the way. Pastor Kinney works very diligently during Lent to fast. And one of the exercises, the spiritual exercises that he does is he fasts and disciplines himself against one specific sin. Everybody has specific sins that become their tentatio, their struggle, their battle. And what those are, you and the Lord know. But everybody has them. And Pastor Kenny works very hard. And he said, it's a lot of work, but you discipline yourself and you fast. And, you, and he said, I conquer it. I can actually stop that sin. And that's a good thing. That's what you're striving to do, is to, get, to overcome that sin. And he said, so by the end of, you know, when Easter comes, I can rejoice because I've now conquered that sin. But then, you know, three more come up. And he said, well, that's job security in a way, because that means that for, <laughs> you know, every Lent I have something to work on. There's always something that I can work on. Every, every Lent I work on one thing and I conquer it, and then like the Hydra, you cut one head off and then more come up. And that's, that's what it is. So when you're fasting, part of the purpose of your fasting is to conquer that sin, the sin of the flesh. This is why it's the weapon against your flesh. Okay? Um, fasting forces your carnal and animalistic natures and instincts into submission. I govern you, you don't govern me. I put you in chains, you don't put me in chains. Uh, that's what it does, um, you know, at least temporarily. Because it's something that you have to keep working on. It's a discipline. Now, here's something, though. So you work on giving up one thing. But fasting also is not just about giving something up. It's about taking something up. When you have an addiction, this is a, this is a scientific thing, when you have an addiction, one of the reasons why you need it, you know, when you, like your caffeine addiction or your cigarettes, you need it. It's not that I, I want to smoke, it's that I need to smoke. It's not that I want caffeine, I, I need it. I physically require it. It is an essential thing now. And the reason that that is the way it is, is because 
Now, any of those kinds of addictions, just like drugs, create a pathway in your brain, a reward pathway. So your brain remembers what kind of a benefit doing or, or you know, taking into yourself whatever it is, your brain remembers the benefit and how it makes you feel. And it creates a reward pathway that's sort of like, you know, the, those animals. How do, you, how do you train the animals in the science experiments? Well, if you go through this door, you get a shock. But if you go through this door, you get cheese. And your, your brain figures out, well, if I don't have this thing, I don't do as well in the morning. But if I do have this thing, then I do really well. And then it creates a reward pathway. And the reward pathway is permanent. Your brain cannot erase a reward pathway, which is why when you are an addict who gets over your addiction, let's use alcoholism just because you know, Alcoholics Anonymous does this. When you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so, what do you say after that? I'm so many years, or however much, sober. I've been sober for 12 years. And you keep count. Why do you keep count? Because are you no longer an alcoholic? I once was an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic anymore. What are you? You're a recovering alcoholic. Yes. So whatever sin that it is you struggle with, even when you kick it, you're, it's never gone. Because the reward pathway is always there. So no matter what it is, you're always recovering. And one of the things to, that you do when you're recovering from an addiction is in order to bypass... Your, your brain will make new reward pathways, but once a new reward pathway is set up, it can't be erased. So uh, you, you can replace one thing with something else. Replace the bad thing with a good thing. Well, fasting does that. Why? Because you're, it, fasting isn't only about I'm giving up sweets because I have an unhealthy uh, obsession with them. It's bad for my health, but they're ruling my life. And, I, and I, that's not the way things are supposed to be. I'm supposed to be temperate. I'm supposed to be self-controlled. We need to fast from that. Well, then it's also, well, what am I going to do? I'm giving one thing up. Is it enough just to say, well, I just gave it up? No, you take up another thing. So that's the other part of fasting is, you know, in the time that you're saving, well, I'm not going out and buying sweets all the time. I don't, I don't need my 10-minute smoke break every two hours or whatever. In that time, then, you are doing something else. What are you doing? Pray. So fasting also is something that focuses your mind, focuses your faith, focuses and disciplines your flesh, and then puts it all into spiritual disciplines. It all goes together. You give one thing up to take up something else. And because fasting is intended to implement a change, that's why you can't say, uh, like the example Marla brought up, or the question that she had, that's why you can't say, well, I'm giving chocolate up for Lent, but boy, howdy, when Easter comes, I'm going to eat all the chocolate in the world. That's actually why I hate the tradition of um, Fat Tuesday. Because it's the same attitude. Shoot, I've got to give up sweets. Better eat as much crap as I can to make myself sick of it so that you know, I don't, I'm not going to want it for 40 days. Right? Well, what kind of spiritual discipline is that? That's just gluttony. So if you're going to do that before the fast, then what are you going to do after the fast? You're going to do the same thing. If you're a pig before your fast and you only, you know, you, you pig out like that, you're going to be a pig when your fast is done. 
it's, then it's not discipline, and it's, there's nothing spiritual about it. Your fast becomes a carnal thing in and of itself. What's the point of your fast if it, if it implements no change, if it brings nothing about, if there's no repentance in your fasting? I mean, see, fasting's always tied to repentance. That's part of the reason it's such an effective weapon, is because you're acknowledging that there is some, there is some other God in my life than the other God, and I repent of that, and repenting is turning away. Repenting is not just saying, I'm sorry, metanoia. I am changing, I am turning away, and I am walking away. That's what repentance is, leaving it behind. And therefore, the physical act of repentance is this idea of fasting. I'm going to remove this thing, I'm going to turn, and I'm going to leave it behind because I'm going to live my life as if I don't need these things. I, will, I get to enjoy them, but I'm not going to live my life with a dependency. That's why we fast. So only the empty can be filled, only the beggar can receive. If you have everything, then what's left for you to get? And when Jesus comes and says, I have all kinds of riches to give to you, you say, well, no, I'm good. I get all of my chocolate. It satisfies me. Right? Okay. Okay. So a man who eats too much cannot strive against laziness, while a gluttonous and an idle man will never be able to contend with sexual lust. Therefore, according to all moral teachings, the effort towards self-control commences with a struggle against the lust of gluttony, commences with fasting. That's Leo Tolstoy, great Russian author. Okay. So, what's your aphorism for today? Before I forget. Your aphorism for today is this. Crush the head of invisible dragons. That is what you do when you fast. Crush the heads of invisible dragons. The dragons that come and rear their head, you go, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you. Crush them and don't let them bind you. That's what fasting does. So let's look at a few things. Hey, look, I'm really consistent. We've got 15 minutes left in class and we're just now getting to the narratives. <laughs> Crush the heads of invisible dragons. Yeah. Okay, so there's two things we're going to look at here. These are our primary texts. We don't really have a lot of time for the secondary ones, but Exodus chapter 12 is where we're starting. Exodus 12, 1 to 20. <clears throat> it's, it's all about the Passover. So I'm going to skip a little bit just because we're running out of time and I want to make sure we get to the stuff that we need to. So let's... Okay. We'll start at verse 14. So this day, that is, this is the Passover... Day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread? Yeah, the bread without the leavener. 
That's it's a basic question, but it's really important. Keep that in your head. What's unleavened bread? The bread without the leaven. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. In fact, just so there's not even a temptation, remove the leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That seems like a harsh, a harsh punishment, doesn't it? Whoops, I ate a bite of leavened bread and I wasn't supposed to, and now I'm cut off. I'm cut off from the, the nation of the promise. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Why is unleavened bread important? Why is it so important that they have to remove the leaven from the homes? And why is it so important that the Lord has a punishment that says, if you eat leaven, you're out of the camp of Israel? I bet you never thought about that in the Passover, about the fact that the unleavened bread becomes such a major point here. Let's answer those questions backwards. Why is it such a big deal that the Lord enacts this punishment, that if you eat of the leaven, you are kicked out of the camp of Israel? Well, to answer that, let's consider some other things. What else gets you kicked out of the camp of Israel? There are lots of little answers, but there's one big answer. Okay, sure, idolatry. Okay, sure. But there's all kinds of little things, too. You know, a woman who's given birth is effectively unclean and is out of the camp of Israel for 40 days and then has to come back in for purification and then she's let back in. That's what happened. Mary goes back to the temple after 40 days and is purified, following the law. Uh, you know, all kinds of little sins get you kicked out of the camp of Israel. But what's the point of that? I mean, you look at the, like, I know, I know Leviticus and Numbers are not the most fun books to read, okay? I'm with you. But when you start to understand what the point of all of it is, those books become much more interesting. Specifically, Leviticus. The Levitical law, true or false, exists just to impose things on the Israelites. Well, true or false, that's the only, that's the only purpose of that, of that law, is to, to get them to march in line. No. So then what's the greater purpose? For their own good. Sure. How? How is it for their own good? Okay, sure. But what's the point of, you know, what's the point of the cleanliness stuff? Is it about your gut bacteria and, the, you know, and a possible disease? Or is it about something else? What's the point of sacrifice in the Old Testament? What's the point of any of that? What's the point of being a part of the camp of Israel? What's the point of being a part of the camp of Israel to the degree that being out of the camp of Israel is such a bad thing? Because you're separated from God. You're separated from God. 
because Israel is the nation of the promise. If you're outside of Israel, you're outside of the promise. Being outside of Israel is what we call today being outside of the church. The church is a boat. The church is an ark. What happens to the people that aren't in the ark? They die. So for you to be out is bad. But what is it that gets you out? Sin. That's the thing. If you are unclean, if you are sinful, you can't be in this camp because this is a camp of clean people. Why are there sacrifices? To keep the people clean. But what's the deeper reality? All of it points to Christ. That's why you look at the book of Leviticus and you realize this isn't just some, the Lord sitting there, oh, you know, what else? Um, oh yeah, no shellfish. Don't eat any shellfish. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, uh, make sure that if there's a guy who wants to be a priest, make sure he doesn't walk with a limp. Because eh? I don't want nobody wants to see that. The Lord be with you. You know, as, oh, so make sure that that's on there, okay? I mean, the, they can seem arbitrary, but every single one of those has a deeper meaning to it. So the unleavened bread, you eat of the, you eat of the leavened bread and you have to get out. Why? Well, let's look someplace else. This is the thing. If you have questions about Scripture, Scripture will answer your questions. You just go somewhere else. If I don't understand this passage, I'll go to some other place, okay? So let's go to uh, Luke All of the synoptic Gospels contain what I'm going to have you look at right here. Luke, Luke chapter 12. Verse. Uh, one. <laughs> what verse? Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, it's Good Friday in Jerusalem. Or, oh, I wrecked it. I meant to say Black Friday. <laughs> right? Yeah, Freudian slip, I guess. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. Leaven is sin. Leaven is something that runs your life. Why is it, you know, this is, well, why unleavened bread for the Passover? Because I'm setting you free from sin. Because I'm getting, I'm putting away all of the lusts of your flesh, all the things that you want, and I'm giving you something greater, which is myself. I'm setting you free, you know, Bondage in Israel, or bondage, excuse me, bondage in Egypt doesn't just mean, oh, we were slaves in this geographical location. It's more than that. Bondage in Egypt is also something that is representative of being slaves to sin. This is why we say Jesus is the new Moses who leads his people out of bondage. Because just like the Israelites were held in bondage in Egypt, you, mankind, is held in bondage to the desires of the flesh. It all starts with your parents. God says that I'm not, I shouldn't do this, but I would like to be God and I would like to make the decisions for myself. And my flesh, my passion is for something against God and I'll be the one to make the decision. There it is. So you are a slave of the lusts of the flesh, of the passions. So get that leaven out of your house. Don't eat it. Fast from it because the leaven is sin. You see this? Um, we have time to look at one quick thing. Any, any questions about this kind of stuff?
See, this is where this is. Pardon me. Yeah. Nothing in and of itself. Nothing in and of itself. I mean, you know, you're not going to get a knock on your door from pastor if you're baking cupcakes and you put some yeast in the batter. Okay? Like, don't you know? That's a sin to eat that. Any, you know, any more than you're going to get a knock from me. Oh, don't you know? Leviticus says you're not supposed to be eating shellfish. Why are you having those, you know, those shrimp boils? I just didn't know. Well, the Lord picks leaven for the imagery of it. That's what I'm trying to say is that it's not, he doesn't make the demand willy-nilly. He doesn't say, I don't know, what can we do? Um, let's say uh, leaven. Okay, yeah, you just don't eat leaven. That'll, that'll work, yeah. No, it's about, the, it's about, look, you can have bread with leaven and you can have bread without leaven. They're two different kinds of breads. But right now I want you to realize that putting the leaven into that bread and making that bread something is an image of you adding something into your life. And I want you to take that thing out, whatever it is that is going to leaven your life, I want you to get rid of it. I want you to put it away, I want you to fast from it, and I want you to be unleavened, because my bread is the unleavened bread. I thought that they, they did the unleavened bread because it took time to put leaven in and let bread raise. Oh, well, log sure, logistically. I mean, there's... Yeah, and, and you're not wrong. I just want to be clear, though, you know, with the purpose of this class and how I'm teaching it right now, I'm not talking about the history or the logistical side of it. I am only addressing it from the theological side of it and the, the image of it. Why the Lord chooses leaven? Well, it goes far beyond just a, the practicality of it. You know, why does the Lord say that a priest should be without defect? It really, a priest with a limp really is not allowed to be a priest. Um, you can't let a man with a, with a limp become a priest. Why? Why does it matter? Can he be a priest? Well, sure. But there's the logistical thing of if you can't do the job, like if you have a crushed hand or if you have a limp, you, know, you can't actually do the work that you're supposed to do. So sure, there's the logistical side of it, but there's also the side that says the priest has to be spotless because the offering has to be spotless. Why? Because Christ is spotless. So this is, this is, by the way, just tangentially, it's a good question because it highlights the reality of how to read Scripture. Because what's the temptation when you read Scripture? To look at it and say, well, this can only mean the one thing that it says, which is the literal thing that I read on the page, which is false. I mean, if you ever took any kind of an English class, even in high school, you know that even literature you don't read that way. When's the last time you read a Robert Frost poem in your high school English class and you said, well, this is only talking about the things that are literally on the page. There's no symbolism here at all. This is why we say the Bible you have to treat at least like literature. Because with any other piece of literature, you would look at it like this as an onion. And there's all kinds of different layers and it says one thing, but the one thing is a thousand things. There's so much more, there are so many layers. And you do that with any other piece of literature. If you ever sat down in a book club or in, a, in, an, in an English class or a literature class in high school or in college, that's what they do. They peel all this stuff apart. But then when it comes to the Bible, Christians even, not just the upper academics, they say, well, I'm going to read literature this way, but when I read the Bible, it can't mean anything else because, you know, that treats the Bible as less than literature. But the Bible is at the very least literature. 
which means that if you're going to read Tolstoy by peeling apart layers, then you also have to be willing to read the Bible by peeling apart layers. But the Bible is also more than that. It is more than literature, but it deserves to be treated at least as literature with the same degree of fairness. So when you read scripture, there is a logistical side, there's a practical side, there's a historical side, and then there's all kinds of other little spiritual things, theological imagery, all of the stuff that connects together. And leaven is one of those things. Uh, logistically and practically, yes, uh, unleavened bread is easier, it's quicker, and they can make it and then be ready on the way. But that's not the only reason or even the predominant reason why the Lord says to use it. And the reason we know that is because Jesus uses the image of leaven to talk about sin. And if Jesus is going to use the, image, the imagery of leaven to talk about sin and lusts of the flesh and idolatry, then we know that when the Lord talks about leaven, there is that intent as well, because everything comes back together. So, leaven is sin, fast from it. How do you, you, know, how do you deal with it? Take it out of your house for seven days. You go on a fast. Um, let's look at Romans. Chapter 8, verse 1. I got your back, Bill. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. How do, you not, how do you discipline the flesh? How do you not walk according to the flesh? You discipline the flesh. You get rid of the desires of the passions and their control over you. You fast. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. How can you walk according to the spirit if you're walking according to the flesh? Answer? You can't. So what are you going to choose to do? Are you going to walk with the passions or are you going to fast from them and discipline yourself so that you are working to walk in the Spirit? And that's what it is, really. It's work. Whatever it is that you're fasting from, you know, whether it be an act, a, a, a deed, a, a food, a, something else that you take in, you know, anything, any one of your passions, uh, addictions, whatever they may be, the goal of it is always so that you're disciplining yourself to walk in the Spirit, which is why it's not enough to get rid of just the one thing and say, well, I'm just going to put it away for a while. You take something else up. Part of being pious in fasting is putting away the bad thing and then taking up something good. I'm going to put this thing away and I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to not do this, and I'm going to do this more. You know, that's part of discipline creating the new pathway that says, I'm not going to walk this pathway anymore. I'm going to make this new pathway that goes around it, so I'll do it this way instead. I'm going to discipline myself so that I don't depend on that thing for my greatest good. I depend on the Lord for my greatest good. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. See? But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That's why you live in this world and utilize the items of this world as if you don't need them, because ultimately, do you? No. No. That's why we can, you know, you can look at somebody like Job who says, blessed be the name of the Lord when he loses everything. That's why you can sing a hymn like A Mighty Fortress and say, yeah, take they our goods, fame, child, and wife. We still have nothing lost. Um, the kingdom ours remaineth. You know, what do you lose when you lose all of your goods and all of your comforts in life? If you think that you lose something when you lose all of the comforts in your life, then you are an idolater. Because then that's the passions that are governing your confession. But if you can say, well, I lose all of my, uh, I'll lose, lose all of the experiences, all of the, pa all of the lusts of the passions, and then that's okay. Well, then you're living in the spirit because those things never mattered at all. Sure, they were nice, but they were never necessary. For to be carnally minded is death. To be carnally minded. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, and this is the key verse, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are in the flesh, which doesn't mean that I am alive in flesh, it means that you're living in the flesh. You're listening to what the passions of the flesh desire, listening to your epithumia, what do I want? What's gonna make my flesh feel good? What's gonna serve my body? What's gonna make my brain feel good? What's gonna make me happy? All of this. If you ever find yourself in a position like that, oh, I really need this, or I have to have this, or I can't live without this, then you fast, your weapon against the flesh. It's a constant battle against the flesh because the flesh is always working, the flesh is always craving. That's the thing about the flesh. It's not just that it desires, it craves. Your flesh is like the pregnant woman who craves frozen peas for lunch. That's a true story, that happened. I knew Carolyn was pregnant because she came upstairs with a bag of frozen peas and I asked her, why are you carrying a bag of frozen peas? And she said, because I'm hungry. And I said, you're going to eat frozen peas for lunch? And she said, yes! Am I not allowed to have frozen peas for lunch? I said, no, you're allowed to have them. Eat, eat whatever you want. But that's the, that's the flesh. The flesh is like the pregnant woman. She knows what she wants, and she's not going to do anything until she gets that thing she wants. She's not going to do anything until she sends her husband out to get that kind of ice cream that she wants, or the pickles, or whatever, you know? That's the flesh. It's that woman, that pregnant woman that says, this is what I desire. And not only do I desire, I crave it. I demand it. That's the lust of the flesh. And if, you're, if you live in the passions, if you live in the epithumia, you cannot live with God. So you are constantly and must be consistently combating that uh, in your warfare. Go against the flesh by removing from the flesh the desires of the flesh. Fasting. Okay? Any questions? Okay. Um, here's what we're going to do just quickly. We're going to practice the little service part that we learned. Because I want to see if the kids can outsing the adults. Okay, I don't have my pitch pipe, so I'll just try to. 
Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Okay, we'll do it again. My part. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. One more time, and this time without me. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Okay, uh, we'll have a quick break. You can go to the bathroom, you can throw away your trash, you can get, eat one last cookie or piece of pizza, and we're gonna have uh, our closing service.